We are glad you are listening to this audio recording produced by Cross Point Presbyterian Church of Park City, Utah. For more information regarding the ministries of Cross Point Presbyterian Church, please visit us online at www.crosspointpca.org. And I'd like to invite you, if you would, to turn in your Bible to Genesis chapter 3. We're following along with the launch of CPC Kids as they go through the Jesus Storybook Bible. As a church, we will be looking at the same passages that they'll be studying during their time in the CPC Kids program. Now, we won't read the stories that they'll be reading, but I would like to strongly encourage you, if you don't have the Jesus Storybook Bible, purchase a copy. It's a great resource, even for adults, to have. And if you have children or if you have nieces and nephews or grandchildren, it's a great resource for you to have to be able to give to them and to read to them. Because it does a great job of synthesizing the entire entirety of the Bible into this idea that there's really one big story. There's one big story that begins from Genesis and runs all the way to the end of the Revelation. And that one story has as its featured character this man named Jesus. And even though we don't uh, meet him until the New Testament, he's present in the Old Testament in very powerful and beautiful ways. And we're going to see that in our passage today of Genesis chapter 3. And so what we've said here is that primarily the Bible is a single story. And then we can summarize it in this way. There's four big movements or four chapters. There's the story of creation, which we looked at last week. There's the story of the fall, which we'll look at today. Redemption, which will come. And then the promise of all things being restored at some point in the future. So it's this grand story that includes every single human being who has ever lived and who will ever live. It's a story so big that it includes all of creation. It's a story that the Bible tells us how it unfolds and how God work, is at work in our world to bring salvation to his people and how history will ultimately end out with all things being in subjection to Christ and God's people living once again in his presence. So Genesis chapter 3 is the second movement of this story. It's one of the saddest stories in the Bible, but it's one of the most significant and the most important chapters in the whole of the Bible. And if you don't really grasp Genesis 3, then you're going to struggle to understand why people act the way they do. See, there's, there's lots of different perspectives about humanity. Some people say that human beings are naturally good and it's their environment that corrupts and kind of pollutes them and leads them to do things that we would consider to be immoral or wrong. But the Bible takes an entirely different approach. And it says what happens in the Garden of Eden in Genesis chapter 3 affects every single human being. Every single one of us recognizes that the world we live in is not the way that it should be. David and Madeline and Elliot and Denver Shannon came over last night to watch the Mississippi State Bulldogs take on the Kentucky Wildcats. And if you know, that game ended with Kentucky winning 28-7. to it was a very unexpected outcome for me. The whole time I kept thinking, this is not the way it's supposed to be. This is not the team that I cheer for. They looked absolutely horrible on the field last night. There was, there was this disconnect between what I was seeing and what I expected to see. But you and I, we have that all the time. Every time we go to CNN or Fox News or turn on the news or listen to the radio, NPR, we hear stories that confirm that the world is not the way it's supposed to be. We hear about conflicts between nations. 
We hear about trusted individuals who abuse sexually, those who've been trusted to their care, about husbands and wives and parents in conflict, people calling it quits in their marriage. Even now we're being told that the climate's not doing what it's supposed to do and that we have to respond. We know that we live in a world that's broken, but we're not exactly always sure why. So Genesis 3 presents us with this story. So if you would, let me invite you to stand as we read God's word. Genesis chapter 3, beginning in verse 1. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, did God actually say, you shall not eat of the tree, of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden. But God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden. Neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be open and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was delight to the eyes and that the tree was, desi- was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate. Then the eyes of both were open and they knew that they were naked and they sewed fig leaves together and they made for themselves loincloths. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden. and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. He said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? And the man said, the woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me fruit of the tree and I ate. Then the Lord God said to the woman, what is this that you have done? And the woman said, the serpent deceived me and I ate. And the Lord God said to the serpent, because you've done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. And on your belly you shall go and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let me invite you to be seated. Now, every story begins with uh, a bad guy. Every good story really begins with a bad guy. You have the hero, and then you have his nemesis. I think of Star Wars. The first time I saw Star Wars, and you see Princess Leia's ship flying in outer space, and then you see the big Star Destroyer, and they were introduced to Darth Vader. Well, right here in the very beginning of the story in Genesis chapter 3, we're introduced with the serpent. We know, that's revealed later in Scripture, that this is actually the deceiver or the devil or sometimes referred to as Satan, who's disguised himself as the serpent in order to tempt Eve. Now, remember, Genesis 1 ends with the refrain that, that God sees all that he's created and then it's good. It's kind of a, a big picture view of God's creation, speaking all things into existence, and then how he forms and shapes the world for human beings to live and to flourish. And then chapter 2 focuses in on the creation of Adam and Eve. So everything in the garden is exactly the way God intended it when we begin Genesis chapter 3. Everything that's there is of God's generous provision. They're able to eat from any tree except for this one that's in the midst of the garden, the the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, which God's given Adam instructions not to eat of. So it's an ideal situation. Things could not be 
better prepared for the human race to live in communion and fellowship with God than what they are here in this particular scenario. And then we read in Genesis 3. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. Now that word translated in the ESV here, crafty, and it might be translated shrewd or some other way in different English translations, is really not a negative or a positive word. It just means to be discerning, to be wise, to be crafty. But here we see that the serpent, disguised as Satan, is not just crafty, but he's crafty with ill intent. He hates God, and he wants to destroy all that God has made. And the most significant target that he can set his sights on are Adam and Eve, who've been created in the image of God. So he comes to the woman, and he asks her, Did God actually say you should not eat of any tree in the garden? He tempts Eve and he tempts you and I today. And he uses the exact same methods. The way he tempts Adam and Eve in the garden is the exact same playbook he's going to use against you and against you and against me and against every other single human being. So Adam and Eve are in this garden. They're without sin. They live in the fellowship of the living God. We get the sense that he would come to walk with them in the cool of the day from later in chapter 3. So they were there in the place that God made for them. And then the serpent comes. He includes certain things that he includes for you and me. And the first one is, is he begins to, he, he leads us to begin questioning the word of God. He encourages us to question the word of God. Notice what he says in verse 1. Did God actually say, inserting a seed of doubt in the mind of Eve, that God's word, what God has spoken, is it not, isn't really reliable for living life to the fullest? Did God actually say, putting the seed of doubt into her mind, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And he gets her to think. And as soon as he has her thinking and questioning, the sufficiency of God's word, then she is going to question everything else. Not only is she going to question the authority of God's word, she's going to question God's judgment. Did God actually say, can you trust his word that he'll do what he said, that he'll judge you for your disobedience and your defiance? Did God actually say you should not eat of any tree in the garden? And she engages with him in this dialogue and she's already lost the battle. He introduces two different ways of denying the word of God. Moses does here in Genesis chapter 3. The first is the overt denial of God's truthfulness, what Satan tempts Eve to do. Can you really trust that what God has said is what you need to know about who he is and how you can be properly related to him as his covenant people? Question the truthfulness, the veracity of God's word. But Eve introduces a way of denying God's word as well. She exaggerates. She adds to God's word. The, Satan, uh, the serpent says, did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And she responds, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden. She's good there. But God said you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden. She's still good there. But then she goes and she adds this stipulation. Neither shall you touch it lest you die. Now that was not the instruction that was given to them. So Satan comes to her and says, you can't trust God's word. Eve denies the, 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 the sufficiency of God's word by adding to it. God had not forbidden them to touch. He only for, had forbidden them from eating it. So Eve adds this restriction. So there's a danger for us. 
we can go and err one of two ways. We can deny the word of God, but we can also corrupt it by adding to it, placing restrictions that the scriptures don't. So we should be careful where the word speaks. We should speak confidently and boldly. But where God's word is silent, we should be silent. The second thing that the serpent does is he gets her to question the character of God. He's called in the question of God's word. Now he's calling in the character of God. He calls her to focus on the one thing that God had said was off limits to Adam and Eve. Think about where they're at. They're in this garden. God says you can eat of any of the fruit of the trees that are in the garden. So the idea is that there are probably a bunch of fruit trees. Anything they wanted, whatever they desired, the fruit was there for them to enjoy because God is good and does not withhold good things from his people. But the serpent takes her attention and he focuses it on that one thing. And he causes her to question the goodness of God. We got all these other trees, but really, you know, God knows the one tree that matters, the one tree he wants to keep for himself, the one tree he doesn't want you to have is that tree in the middle. So is he really good? Does he really love you? Can you trust him to give to you what you need? Can you believe God? And so at the heart is this idea is that God withholds the good things and keeps those for himself rather than freely and generously giving them to his people. God doesn't want you to experience joy. God doesn't want you to experience the pleasures of the life. And so he keeps this one thing from you. So the serpent's move is to offer something that sounds good, but in reality she'd need. Okay? In the reality, she didn't need. Every one of her needs was provided for in the garden. And yet, the serpent comes and says, oh, but you don't have this one thing. You don't have this one thing that God has kept for himself. So he offers her this thing that she doesn't really need. How many times are we deceived in that way? I mean, that's billions of dollars are spent on marketing and advertising, marketing things to you and me so that we would become dissatisfied with our current car or our current mattress or our current watch or whatever it is so that we might buy something that we really don't need. He offers her something that sounded good, but it was a lie. But see, the devil speaks in half-truths, and it sounds good, and she was easily deceived. What we see is that they would, in fact, know good and evil, but it's going to be a knowledge that brings death and destruction and all kinds of evil into the world. The lie from the devil was that they would be happy. They would be free from God's rule and reign over their lives. They would be, but they'd also be cut off from the source of life itself. See, the knowledge of good and evil that they get only serves... To, uh, to multiply their knowledge of evil and shame. You know, they don't come away overwhelmed with the knowledge of goodness, do they? No, they come away overwhelmed with the knowledge of shame and of their sin and the brokenness that they've introduced into all of creation. Gordon Wenham says that they do become like God, knowing good and evil, but this knowledge, rather than making them like God and bringing them closer, actually serves to separate them. And draw them away. So the thing that they thought they really needed to live life to the fullest is the thing that takes them away from the source of that fullness of life. The serpent's promises come true. But they come true in a very different way than you would expect. If God had fulfilled these promises, they would have been good gifts. 
and their hearts would have been satisfied. But because the deceiver offers them these half-truths, they experience sin and the eventual shame that draws them away from God, draws them away from one another. The third thing that he leads them to do is to question God's sovereign control over their life. After he gets her to question God's word and God's goodness, it was easy for him to then plant the seed of, you need to take control. You can't trust this God, what he says. You can't trust this God because he's not good. You need to take charge and live life on your own terms. You need to seize control for yourself. And if the fruit looks good, and if you think the fruit will taste good, then you need to pick that fruit and you need to eat it. That sounds kind of exciting. And so he says, you don't, you can't trust God. And if you can't trust God, then you only have one other person to trust, and that's yourself. So you live by your own rules. You can't trust God. You make up your own mind, and then you follow it. So they make this decision. Rather than live in the garden in submission and obedience to what God had commanded, they make the decision to chart their own course. To blaze a trail for themselves. But here's the thing. We were in Vegas. I took my daughter to a concert down there. And we stayed in the Encore. And we had uh, a view of kind of the backside of the strip. And they, uh, uh, I don't know if it's new or not, but it's the first time I'd ever seen it. They have a monorail that connects the convention center with several things kind of up and down the Las Vegas Boulevard. Now, here's the thing. If you're a monorail, maybe you think to yourself one day, I really want to be free. I want to go wherever it is that I want to go. And so I'm going to leave this track that my engineer, that my builder has put me on because I want to see all that the world has to offer. Now, how much good is a monorail disconnected from its track? It's not any good at all. It's completely and totally worthless. The same thing is true for you and for me. God, because he loves us, God, because he's a father who cares, has created a life for us to live. And when we go outside of that, we become worthless like a monorail disconnected from its track. We seek freedom, and what we find is bondage. We seek freedom, and what we find is heartache. We find ourselves stuck in the power of sin that it has over us. We experience its effects. And the people we love and the people around us experience its effects as well. So God sets up these boundaries. Why? Because he wants us to experience true freedom. But you and I, like Adam and Eve, like our first parents, we question the word of God. We question the goodness of God. And therefore, we live life on our own terms. So if sin is the rejection of God's word and God's sovereign control over your life and mine, then what do we do to get back on track, let's say? Well, first of all, we have to become a people of God's word. We have to know God's word. That's part of the reason why as a church we're going through the story of the Bible. So that we can become a people who know God's word, who loves God's word, who cherishes God's word. But most importantly, a people who obey God's word. See, it's more than just knowing, but it's submitting ourselves and doing what God has instructed us. It means more than just having in our minds, but it's putting in our hearts so that our actions are transformed. So we have to pay careful attention to God's word. Specifically to the parts you find most difficult and most challenging. The things that you want to dismiss because they may seem harsh or cruel or outdated or unsophisticated for our minds and our culture and our society are probably the places where we're tempted to live in rebellion. 
Here's the thing. God's an equal opportunity offender. Because every single one of us are sinners. He'll confront us because he loves us in those places where we're in error. It's not always comfortable. Sometimes it's severe, but it is always God's mercy to draw us back to himself. So do you know God's word? Do you have a systematic way in place to study God's word? To memorize God's word? To meditate on God's word? For some of you, maybe you're early risers, and that means you have a time in the morning. For others, maybe you like to stay up late at night and you do it like that. Or maybe you do it in a small group with a good friend or your wife or your husband or someone like that. But are you systematically studying, meditating, and memorizing on God's word? And then are you submitting yourself to it? Adam and Eve sin. Everything changes. Immediately, we read, that the eyes of both were open and that they knew that they were naked. They sewed fig leaves together and they made themselves loincloths. And then they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves. They ex- immediately experienced shame and embarrassment. They lived as naked husband and wife in the presence of God, unclothed, who knows for how long. And in the moment that they choose to rebel, they experience shame and embarrassment in every single one of us have been experiencing the exact same thing. So they discover they're naked, and so what do they do? They try, and it's almost like Moses is, is presenting us with a, a, a silly picture of them sewing together fig leaves to try to cover their bodies. Think about that. The leaves on my aspen trees are turning brown and falling off. Fig leaves would not make for suitable clothing for very long at all. They probably weren't very I don't even know what a fig leaf looks like. Hopefully it's big, you know, so it doesn't take too many of them, but it's probably uncomfortable. But here they are because of the shame and the embarrassment that they feel. They do instinctually what you and I do. They try to cover themselves. They try to hide. And then they're going to justify themselves by pointing the blame at someone else. Everything has changed. Their relationship to God has changed. And now all of a sudden they're embarrassed and ashamed and they hide. Their relationship with one another has changed. They're at odds. Husband and wife in conflict. They're at odds with all of creation now as well. So they hear the sound of the Lord God as he's walking in the garden, the cool of the day, and it says they instinctually knew to hide. They felt guilty, and so they hide. And every single one of us has been doing the exact same thing ever since. The Westminster Confession of Faith, talking about Adam and Eve, who we refer to theologically as our first parents, says this about them. Our first parents, being seduced by the subtlety and the temptation of Satan, they sinned in eating the forbidden fruit. This, their sin, God was pleased, according to his wise and holy counsel, to permit, having purposed to order it to his own glory. By this sin, they fell from their original righteousness and communion with God, and so became dead in sin, and wholly defiled in all the parts and faculties of soul and body. They, being the root of all mankind, The guilt of this sin was imputed, and the same death and sin, corrupted nature, was conveyed to all their posterity, descending from them by ordinary generation. The Belgic Confession describes it this way. We believe that by the disobedience of Adam, original sin is spread throughout the whole human race. It's the corruption of the entire nature of man and a hereditary evil which infects even infants in their mother's womb. As a root, it produces in man all sorts of sin is therefore, therefore so vile and abominable in the sight of God that it's sufficient to condemn the human race. They sin, 
and every one of us in Adam and Eve, because God is wise and chose them to represent all of humanity, we sinned with them. And we continue to sin. Some of us would like to think, well, if God would have given us that same scenario, he'd have given us that same deal, put us in a garden where we have every tree to eat from except for this one, that we would have done things differently. But we prove continuously over and over every single day that we continue in the same kind of disobedience and rebellion that our first parents continue in. Why? Because we're sinners by nature. How do you know you're a sinner by nature? How many of you have, have kids in here? Okay. If you don't have kids, how many of you know somebody who has kids? Okay. So that should be but, you know, pretty much everybody. got 100% coverage right here. How many of you think your children were taught by you or by uh, your friend's parents taught their kids, their children, to lie? Okay. How many of you did that? How many of you as parents thought, you know what, we probably need, at some point they're going to need to know how to be deceptive and evade the truth, so I'm going to teach my children to lie. We didn't teach our children to lie. But you know what? They do it. And I know where they got it. They got it from the kids in the nursery of the church we used to be on staff back. And I'm just kidding. They got it from me. They got it from me. We didn't teach our kids to lie. Lord's dad, he struggled with this idea that children are born sinners. When his, his, his granddaughter, Hattie Margaret, my firstborn, was real young, we were at their house, and we were having this big theological discussion about how you know, children are born sinners. Oh, no, they're so good, and they're so innocent. And in that moment, it was sovereignly ordained by God, one of those moments that you like might live your whole life to see. She did something, and then she came up to us, and Lori asked her, did you do that? And she, with as straight a face as possible, lied to our face. And her dad never had a problem with the idea of our children being sinners from that point forward. We don't teach our children to sin, but they do it because they're sinners by nature. You sin because you're a sinner by nature. So up to this point, pretty much everything has been about the certain serpent and how crafty he is to deceive Adam and Eve. But now we see God enters the garden. Now, from the earliest times, Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, has been called the Proto-Evangelium. Because it's the first time that we see the promise of God's redemptive intervention. It's the first time that we see that even though our first parents fail, I mean, that's happened a few verses right before that, God is on the scene to say, I will save and deliver my people. Adam and Eve, we talk about, were put in the garden and they were living under what we call the covenant of works. And the idea is that as long as they obeyed God, then God would continue to provide and bless them with his presence and with his fellowship. But the moment that they eat of the fruit, God, instead of destroying them, but judges sin, instead reveals a covenant of grace. And he makes a promise to them of a savior, one who would someday restore all that was lost by Adam and Eve in the garden. Now, it's a metaphor that you see here when God judges the serpent. He says, because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock, above all beasts of the field, and your belly shall go, dust your seed all the days of your life. And then he says in verse 15, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. It's a metaphor that you and I can read backwards and we see that what he's promising here all the way at the beginning of the story of the Bible is the Messiah. A Savior who will one day Offer his life in place of his people. He says, I'm going to put enmity between 
your offspring and her offspring. It's really kind of only two teams in the world. Throughout all of human history, there's really only two teams. You either play for the team of the serpent or you play for the team of the living God. There's no other option. He says, I'm going to put enmity, enmity between your offspring and her offspring. There's going to be this, this great cosmic battle that's taking place. And you'll bruise, he'll bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. There's this picture or this metaphor of what we know as a substitutionary atonement. That seems to be what lies behind this promise, but also the provision that God makes for them later on. In which he provides them garments of skin from an animal and clothes them. Remember, they wanted to cover their nakedness and their shame by sewing together fig leaves. That wasn't sufficient. And all of us try to cover ourselves by being good and doing what we're supposed to. And going to church and whatever it is that we think that God expects of us. And it's just like Adam and Eve trying to cover ourselves with fig leaves. It's not going to work. And so God says, you can't cover yourself, but I can cover you. And so he offers a sacrifice. And this animal is a substitute and sheds his blood so that Adam and Eve wouldn't have to shed theirs and so that they can be clothed. In verse 21, the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skin and he clothed them. So we see very be- at the very beginning there's this idea of a substitutionary atonement. That in order for sins to be forgiven, blood has to be spilt. That's why Hebrews chapter 9 says, without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sin. So we see all the way back in Genesis chapter 3, the promise of Jesus. The one who created the world is going to be the one who offers his life to redeem it. We know that in the New Testament, Jesus comes, he appears on the scene preaching the gospel, which is the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe. He shows up to John the Baptist, who was the herald of the Messiah. And, the, and the, uh, John the Baptist sees Jesus. And remember what he says? He says, behold, the Lamb of God who comes to take away the sin of the world. He recognized that Jesus was coming to make an atoning sacrifice through his life, his death, and his resurrection. So that God's people could be saved. So that the grace and the mercy that we see promised all the way back in Genesis chapter 3 could be a reality for you and me today. Because God's word is true, we're here today and we experience it. You know the forgiveness of sins because God promised it. And what we talked about as we went through the book of Deuteronomy, God was faithful in the past. God continues to be faithful in the present. And God will still be faithful in the future because God promised it in Genesis chapter 3. Jesus comes and delivers it and the Holy Spirit now has applied that grace and that mercy. And you and I, if you're in crisis, you know the forgiveness of sins. You know what it's like to be alienated as an enemy of God, but because of God's grace and mercy, because you've trusted yourself wholly unto Jesus for God the Father to open his arms up wide and say, you are now my beloved Son or daughter with whom I am well pleased. See, God doesn't see us and treat us the way our sins deserve. He sees us and treats us according to the righteousness of Christ. So if you're in Christ this morning, be at peace. That what God began all the way back in Genesis 3, he will be faithful to complete it at some point in the future. And it will be the redemption and the restoration of not only your life, but of all creation.